What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You know, I have to wonder how public perception of labor movements is changing. You know, would this have been something that, you know, a response that we would have seen in the 80s, 90s, 2000s with, you know, the rise of globalization and global supply chains seeming like a great thing? And, you know, is this a response we would have seen from the public that was largely supportive of these um, jobs staying in the, you know, Derby area in, in, in a place where they had been done for so long? And, you know, I think it's really a product of how people's perspectives are shifting. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We are back. This week we're speaking to activist Aaron Dolan and Washington Nationals pitcher Sean Doolittle. They are a power couple of social justice and we're talking to them about a recent campaign that they have embarked upon to make sure that baseball caps, the ones worn on the field, stay union. Also, I've got some choice words about the Colin Kaepernick-Eric Reed settlement with the National Football League. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. But first, let's go to Aaron Dolan and Sean Doolittle. So I'm going to start just by asking you about the New Era Caps. How did you find out that they were closing their union shop in Derby, New York to move to non-union Florida? Yeah, um, about a week ago, um, we were driving, and I, I had promised a friend I would get him and his sons, um, his two sons, some of the new um, National Spring Training caps, because um, they have that old, like, uh, logo with a not curly W. It looks pretty cool. And uh, so I was looking for them on – I was just searching on Twitter to find it, and I, I happened to find that story. And so we read a little bit more about it and um, – you know, found out that these uh, were just the caps that the players would be wearing and how long that, that factory had been in Derby and how long they'd been making players' caps and uh, and what that meant to that town and the taxpayers and, and, you know, their schools and infrastructure too, not just for the families and of the workers. And what was your next move after you found out that was taking place? Well, as with almost everything we do, we – we dig in as much as we possibly can. We do as much research as we possibly can so that we're not, you know, undermining anything or speaking out of turn or speaking on behalf of people who, you know, may not want us to. So, you know, which is the last thing we want is to undermine any, any movement that's actually already happening. And, and to be clear, this had been a movement that had been happening. Um, and there were people on the ground up in Buffalo that have been on this since, you know, the layoffs were announced um, or, or proposed. And uh, 
you know, we've got the Coalition for Economic Justice Buffalo. We've got um, Western New York Area um, Labor Federation and the Teachers Unions up in New York. And they had been really on this for quite some time, and they'd been covering this and speaking out on behalf of the, um, the factory workers. And so um, we, we spoke with as many people as we possibly could, and we um, reached out to the players' associations. Um, Sean did that that evening mm-hmm. um, to see what they had thought about it, and they, Sean and the union, were able to collaborate and um, work on a statement that he was going to put out, and then the, the PA would eventually put out, right? Yeah, I wanted to ask you that, Sean. How did you get the union on board? Um, so um, I had, I guess, uh, shortly after we found out, um, Aaron tweeted some things about it, and I put together a tweet thread. And, you know, at that point, um, I, I don't think either of us were really sure how the tweets were going to be accepted or what kind of response they were going to get, but we just wanted to raise awareness of the issue and, um, you know, show some solidarity that make a really visible symbol of our game. And um, by like the next day, um, it was really apparent that there was a lot of support for them and so, you know, I, I, I contacted the union about, about doing, you know, maybe a more uh, formal or more thorough uh, show of solidarity because I was, in my mind, I was like, well, look at the support that we drummed up when a, uh, just a, a, a one major leaguer spoke out, you know, maybe, maybe we could continue to move things in the right direction for these workers if, if the Players Association could publicly stand with them um, as well, uh, you know, and representing all, you know, 750, um, you know, players in Major League Baseball. So um, I sent them an email and um, I worked on a, I, I mean, I worked on a statement to say, like, is, could we say something along these lines? And um, by the next day um, they had put together uh, what ultimately went out. Um, so um, it was great. They they sprung into action uh, really really quickly and uh, wanted to be wanted to to make uh, you know our voices as players. They wanted to make it a part of the conversation. Yeah, and and it was important that the union was on board from the very beginning. You know, we did run everything by them before we tweeted anything, just to say, you know, are we are we speaking out of turn? Is Sean speaking out of turn as a union member? Um, or as a major league baseball player, who will be wearing these caps? And am I speaking out of turn um, as, as somebody, you know, just even tangential to the game? So, um, mm-hmm. and, and so they were very instrumental, at least behind the scenes at, at first, um, in, in helping us craft that and then ultimately coming out with that statement, which um, we were really happy with. Was the union even aware this was happening, or was this a case where they were aware, weren't doing anything, and needed a kick in the butt to get them to move? Uh, to be honest, uh, I'm not really sure. I, I don't, I didn't get the sense that this was something that had been on their radar. Um, we had, we had learned that the, um, the workers, they had, when they had signed a contract, um, that prevented them from, you know, publicly raising, um, any of their issues or publicly organizing. Uh, and I think that, is one of the main reasons that this didn't get um, 
much publicity when these decisions were made um, about the new era factory. I think it was back in the end of November, uh, early December when this decision first came down. So um, I, 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 I don't, I don't know for sure, but um, what, you know, as soon as I brought it to their attention, um, they were really supportive and they mobilized really quickly to, uh, right. This was something that they, you know, the workers themselves couldn't personally self-advocate for. Um, so there were other organizations in place that had to sort of, um, well, didn't have to, but they had seen what had happened and seen the coverage of it. And, um, they, they immediately mobilized as well, but, you know, it was, it was sort of a hyper-local story for, for quite some time. And so um, when we saw it, all we, all we really had to do was sort of like lift their voices to the national platform that we're really lucky enough to have. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was very frustrating to see that, you know, it was for so long treated as sort of a local story, like a Buffalo-specific story, a Derby-specific story, when really it is sort of a national story about labor solidarity and um, organization in, in the country that's happening right now. You look at what's happening in, in Oakland right now with all the teachers. You look at West Virginia. You look at the L.A. teachers' strike. Um, you look at some of the hotel strikes that happened last year. And it, it's sort of like it's symptomatic of a, a larger pattern in which workers are sort of being exploited, and there's a sort of a resurgence in labor movements, which, you know, it's, it's really um, – reinvigorating and for players who are you know may or may not be in the midst of any labor strife whether now or in the future it's you know it's important to show solidarity with these people who make their game happen now derby new york uh aaron is that near where you're from no actually I, i'm from chicago and sean is from well or, all over i grew up in new jersey we my family was uh, was military. We were an Air Force family growing up, and we lived for three years. I mean, when I was really little, I hadn't even started school yet in, in Plattsburgh, New York, um, mm. uh, up on Lake Champlain. So um, I do I, – I have some extended family there, um, some cousins on my mom's side uh, live in the Buffalo area. Um, but, um, no, I mean, I can't claim that I'm from there. But we were getting plenty of messages from that family in the Buffalo area who was sending us, you know, clips of the newspaper articles about it and um, after the fact. And they, you know, it, would, it had just come to their attention as well, um, which was sort of surprising because it was a local story even before we mm-hmm. got on board. Sean, any reactions from teammates getting them on board? Any friction in the clubhouse with this? Uh, yeah, it was something that we guys had uh, uh, they had questions uh, about, they wanted to learn about it. Um, guys said that they saw it and, and, and they really appreciated it. Um, I think um, as, as we, as players um, are starting to have some of our own labor issues to think about and, you know, kind of discuss and um, we've started to, you know, really take note of, you know, other labor issues. It's, and, and this one is, is really directly tied to our game. Um, as Aaron mentioned, there's some labor movement. There's some, some uh, action being taken in, in several communities that Major League Baseball plays in. But this, you know, these workers make uh, a part of our uniform that uh, is a symbol that 
fans really identify with. Um, the hat is kind of a, a sacred thing to a player. So many guys write, uh, you know, messages or initials of loved ones or family members inside their hats. Um, so I think players connect with it uh, for for a number of different reasons. Right, and mm. to be clear, these are the these are the caps that will be the ones that are um, going to be manufactured elsewhere. These are only players on field caps. These are not the replica ones. These are not the ones for sale in shops or online. These are specifically the players' caps. So you know it was something that was important to a lot of players, like for example Colin McHugh, who lived with a host family when he was in the minor leagues up in Buffalo, who um, worked at the factory and had been able to show them the history and, and how entrenched they were in the, in the Derby, you know, greater Buffalo community. Um, so it was, it was really important that as they continue to wear this symbol of the game, that it's, it's something that's created with fair wages and, and good labor practices. Now the replica caps are made in China, right? Um, they're, they have a global supply chain, which Numero um, has, has mentioned before. Um, all of their caps, save for the player's caps, um, if they do move to this other factory, um, all of them will be globally outsourced. As of now, about 4 million of their 65 million caps that they make, um, only 4 million are made in Derby. Um, and so those are, those are player caps, and then I believe the 5950 replica ones as of now. Once it moves, they will outsource all the replicas, and it will only be player ones. Hmm. I was wondering if this could move the discussion in the other direction, perhaps getting the replica caps made here in the United States under union power. Do you see that as a possibility? You know, I, I hope, in my mind, I hope it's possible that all of these 4 million caps, and ideally all 65 million would be made within the United States with union, union jobs, and the people have been doing it for, you know, they've been doing it since, for 60 years. So um, that would be the ideal circumstance that, that New Era is able to reconsider and keep, keep those jobs in Buffalo and keep their headquarters there um, because that means these people get to continue to do what they've been dedicated to for so long. Um, as for the replica ones, that certainly would be ideal if those jobs stayed union. And, and when we say union labor, this is absolutely not to say that, you know, a non-union job is somehow lesser than a union job. Um, it's, it's to say that, you know, unions and the actions of unions are, they're things that lift up all workers in the country. You know, the, the labor movement and union activity has provided all workers, even not in unions, with protections that they wouldn't have had before, like, you know, paid time off or maternity leave and, and other things, you know, that, that make it a little bit easier to, to live ideally with, you know, the one job that they have. I think, you know, and thinking about these workers specifically, like these workers were able to uh, make hourly wages that were enough to support their families. Um, they, they, they didn't need necessarily to take a second job to make ends meet. Um, they got good benefits, um, but it's going to be, it, it might be tough for some of these workers to, you know, if these jobs go away, for these workers to transition into a, a different line of work because this work that they've been doing, uh, working on these caps is, is so specialized. And you think about some of the complications that arise as a result of working in factories like this, where um, they deal with carpal tunnel or they have you know, issues mm. with their, 
in their hands and uh, fine motor skills, stuff like that. Um, it's not, it's not, maybe not the most transferable skill set, or it might make them difficult. So they were really relying on the security that this job provides. Um, you know, the the union wages and, and the benefits that came along with it. Wow, that's really saying something. What were you saying, Aaron? Yeah, no, I. I um... I was just saying that they, you know, some of them do deal with some repetitive motion distress and all of that. And, um, you know, it's not only that, but as an industry, it was one of the few remaining ones left up in Derby um, in the, in the Buffalo area. And so it's, it's, it's enormously important as, as a point of town pride um, that they've been doing this, that the caps you see in Cooperstown, that the caps you see on the world series and, you know, all these great baseball moments are made there. And, you know, we've heard that some of them sometimes will watch games and they wonder, you know, did I make that one in a big moment or, you know, who, who put, you know, whose hands were on that? Because it is a 22 step intensive process to make these, which was something mm-hmm. we didn't appreciate. Um, unfortunately, until we learned about it, you know, this is, there are something like 3,200 stitches that go into just a Mets logo. Um, we didn't know it was a 22 step process to make these caps and they go through all these hands. And so it really gives you a greater appreciation for the work and the care that goes into all of the components of baseball that, you know, you will never see other than seeing it superficially on a player's head or in their uniform. You know, there's so much that happens off the field as far as, and a lot of it, um, you know, is is sort of invisible. You know, you look at, as Sean had mentioned in one of his um, posts, that hospitality, um, transportation workers, so much labor, concession security goes into making a game possible. It makes it so that we can even watch a game in a stadium. And this mm-hmm. is just an example of it, of, of somebody's care and dedication to something. And, you know, hoping that that quality and dedication isn't, isn't going to suffer because that means the game will suffer. Now, Sean, did you get any of that, who are you to say anything, you're just an athlete kind of response? Actually, no, um, I didn't, um, you know, and, and I don't know if the filter that comes with a check mark on Twitter was working overtime or not, but, um, I didn't, I didn't get the sense, uh, I didn't get that sense, uh, at all. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I was, uh, I was kind of hesitant that I might run into some of that, uh, when I initially, tweeted it out and um uh but i tried to be thorough with uh what we were trying to say and we were you know in elevating the the voices of uh, of these families in in derby and um no i i i have to say that i was uh very overwhelmed by the amount of positive support that we got Right. I, I, I have to wonder, I mean, I'm sorry to, to jump in here, but, you know, I have to wonder how public perception of labor movements is changing. You know, would this have been something that, you know, a response that we would have seen in the 80s, 90s, 2000s with, you know, the rise of globalization and global supply chains seeming like a great thing? And, you know, is this a response we would have seen from the public that was largely supportive of these um jobs staying in the, you know, Derby area in, in, in a place where they had been done for so long. And, you know, I think it's really a product of how people's perspectives are shifting, um, especially lately. As you think about what 
uh, the dignity of work means. As, you know, we see these stats come out saying that unemployment is so, you know, the numbers are lower than ever, but, you know, when you dig a little deeper, you see what underemployment looks like. You see what it means to work in a non-union factory job, um, even within the United States, and, you know, what that daily experience might be like. So I think people are becoming far more aware of that, and I think that contributed to a lot of why the response was so positive from, from people who had come across it. I got a handful of responses now that I think about it, about how, um, you know, it, it, this is another case of union jobs, um, you know, pricing themselves out of work. Um, they were far and away the minority um, in my in my at replies, but I think it, it's a reminder that, um, you know, we forget that we should be about not just creating jobs and employing people, but you know, doing so with dignity so that the one job that they have is enough to support them and their families. Um, and, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be seen as uh, a race to the bottom to get the cheapest labor um, so you can maximize your profits. Um, it should be something about, uh, you know, taking care of your employees and, and, and treating them with, uh, you know, dignity and respect. Right, because, you know, these non-union jobs within the United States, we see stories in the media, even lately, um, that, that read as though they've kind of come out of the jungle almost, um, as, in, as in the book, um, the Upton Sinclair book, um, where, where you read about women who are experiencing reproductive health issues and um, people who, you know, there was a story recently about chicken plant workers who have to wear diapers because on, the, on the job because they're not allowed, you know, time for bathroom breaks or, you know, time for injuries or anything like that. And you see how the conditions are in some factories and distribution centers. And you think this is, this is what it can look like. It's not what it does look like everywhere in non-union manufacturing and distribution, but that's what it can look like in the United States with a non-union job. As we were talking before, I was thinking about how you mentioned earlier the Oakland teachers going on strike, the L.A. teachers, and whether or not the positive response you received, do you think that's a reflection of the wheel turning in American culture, which would certainly be a welcome development? No, I think you're right. And I think um, I think if you've looked at some of these issues that have come up, these labor issues that have come up around the country, the thing that really sh- uh, ends up shifting – uh, the support in their favor to ultimately help them uh, reach a favorable end um, is is solidarity. I mean, it, it was solidarity between workers and a couple of labor organizations that brought an end to the most recent government shutdown when mm-hmm. uh, transportation and airport workers threatened to shut airports down um, in a very credible and organized way. And you look at uh, you saw firefighters uh, standing with teachers in, in L.A. Um, and at the Denver, at the Denver teacher strikes, actually the, one of the best shows of solidarity was from their students. Um, their students walked out of the school uh, in a show of solidarity rather than sit um, in there and, uh, and, and with, you know, sit in class with the, with the substitute teachers that they had recruited uh, to take their places in the classroom. Um, which was great to see after it, it was it, it was in Denver, where Denver was apparently trying to recruit some government workers that were affected by the shutdown to take to take uh, to take their place in the classroom. So, um, it's I I I think it, this is all part of a of a bigger conversation about you know, workers' rights, about 
uh, you know, the economy and, and employment in America today. Um, but this was a case where we were able to use our platform as a more visible and, and prominent union to, um, you know, show, show some of that support. Mm. Yeah, that gets to my last question. You've both been super active on questions ranging from refugee rights to LGBTQ issues. You mentioned the issue of the lockout of federal workers. You've been active speaking about that online. I just want to ask you guys, I just want to ask you both where this comes from. I mean, everyone has an origin story in terms of their activism or awareness. Where does that come from for you? Um, Well, in my case, um, for, for almost all of this, Um, I mean, in this particular case, my mom was a factory worker. She worked in Illinois at the Itasca um, uh, factory. They were making milk jugs. And uh, she worked there, and she was a member of the union. And that gave her, it afforded her a lot of protections um, that were basically allowing her to have just a a normal job and to make sure that she was safe at her place of work, that she, you know, was protected if she was injured or something. And and that really helped her and enabled her to... um, to be upward, upwardly mobile. And in my family, we have a long history, generational history of, of union membership. Um, and, and that's something that we've seen firsthand, even recently, um, protecting people in our family and, you know, supporting them. My, my, own, my uncle um, works at a, a hotel in Chicago. And because of union movements, um, when he had knee surgery a couple of months ago, he was able to get some paid time off to recover, which would not have happened um, otherwise. And that's just the most recent example, um, just in recent memory. Um, as for the other issues, I think a lot of it is, is rooted in, in the dignity of, like the inherent dignity of the human person. Um, we speak about these sorts of things because, you know, it's whether or not it's happening to us, and even just take baseball out of this equation as, you know, a player's union or as a league, it's a question of like the dignity of a job and, and what it means to put food on the table and support family um, and have a home that, you know, in, in our experience just in the baseball world, this is obviously very far removed from, from that situation. Um, our home is not always stable in the sense that, you know, we could be moved at any given time. We are kind of subject to the idea of a trade or, um, you know, getting sent up or down or whatever the case may be. So the idea of what a home means, even though we experience it in a far more privileged way, is something that's really important to us and something that we feel very deeply. Um, so so that's, that's where it comes from in my, in my, in my idea. Um, Sean, what do you think? Um, I, I just go back to a story from when I was maybe, I think I was like probably eight or 10 years old, um, my my parents were pretty active in the community that I grew up in, um, at, at least as far as, like, the athletic association went. And, um, you know, our town didn't have a big budget to, main, to maintain, like, a lot of the fields and stuff in our town. So it, it fell to, like, people volunteering their time uh, to take care of them. And our, uh, we lived close enough where we could, like, ride our bikes up to the fields. And sometimes we'd go up there and and hit or run around and uh, play. There's a park and a playground and stuff. And, um, but one day we went up there and, you know, my dad kind of put us to work and we were, we were raking leaves and we were mowing grass in the outfield and we were, we were picking up sticks out of the batting cage net and cleaning up the dugouts, all the trash and stuff. And, 
Uh, I couldn't understand like what we were doing. I thought we were going to go up and, and take some swings in the batting cage or take some ground balls or something. And, um, you know, he, he was, he showed me the importance of taking care of something and leaving it better than you found it. Um, this wasn't anything that anybody told us to do. It was something that he thought was important enough to, um, you know, get us involved in and, um, you know, kind of pay it forward and, and do something for the community. And then afterwards we could hit and, and we could, uh, we could take round balls and, and do stuff like that. So I'm glad you did. Um, that's one of the things I just mm. think about um, leaving things better than you found them. Um, especially when it comes to stuff that, uh, you know, maybe we've had some experience with, um, but, or maybe it's related to our game somehow or something that's happening in our community, just trying to use our platform to elevate those voices. Right. Mm. And, and, you know, it's, when we think about, you know, leaving a place better than we found it, it, that kind of goes back to, the idea that if you're in a position to help somebody or lend your platform or lend your, you know, lend your privilege, so to speak, um, you should, you should try to do it. If it's something that really speaks to you, um, because not everybody has that platform and the ability that we, we do to, to raise these issues um, and have them reach a, a broader audience. So, you know, that's kind of goes back to the idea of how union labor is a benefit to all labor in that, they provide protections even for non-union workers. And, you know, as, as the MLBPA is a more prominent union where they are very much financially secured as players, it's, it's sort of their responsibility um, to lend that a little bit um, to these other people who maybe don't have the same reach and security that they do. One last question, just because I ask this of everybody, and I apologize, this is off topic. Do you share similar tastes in music as you do this work, or are you on different musical plateaus as you go about your lives? Um, recently, <laughs> recently, well, our, our taste is pretty eclectic. Um, Sean's very much metal, um, but he's recently been into, I think, the Nashville, new Nashville sounds, like the Sturgill Simpsons. And I always, you know, tend to remind him, you know, a lot of that is rooted in the Arlo Guthrie and the Pete Seeger, um, which is what I grew up listening to. Um, and... <laughs> So we, we've been listening to a lot of Pete Seeger, put it that way, this week. But also a lot of um, System of a Down, um, which we just recently rediscovered, much to my delight, um, because I highly recommend them, revisit them. They absolutely hold up. <laughs> that's uh, that's the, the stuff that we listen to when it, it's around the house. It's a lot of that stuff. Uh, Grateful Dead, Almond Brothers, um, Aaron mentioned that Nashville sounds that uh, Sturgill Simpson and Jason Isbell and Culture Wall, um, you know, so it, it is it is very much um, it, it is very much all over the place, much like um, both of us and our crazy lifestyle and attention fans. I think my sports podcast leads the country in athlete guests who listen to Jason Isbell. Yeah, <laughs> you know. I've, apparently he's a Braves fan, which is tough for us to swallow, but we are huge fans. That was, uh, he, we had a lot of Israel at our wedding and, uh, we were big fans. That's badass. Hey, Aaron and Sean, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Take care. Yourself, vanish into nothing. And this is how you make yourself worthy of the love that she gave to you. Back when you didn't own a beautiful thing
We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now I've got some choice words about the Colin Kaepernick-Eric Reed settlement with the National Football League. Okay, it was announced last Friday, seems like eons ago, that NFL players Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed settled their collusion grievances with the National Football League. Kaepernick and Reed, of course, both found themselves unsigned at the start of the 2018 season, with Kaepernick also being kept off the field during the 2017 season, both for their iconic kneeling during the national anthem to protest police violence and racial inequity. At least that's their contention. All parties are subject to a confidentiality agreement in regards to this settlement, but there are some things we do know. We do know that they got paid, and we do know that nobody in the media saw this coming. And now questions remain. Why did the infamously litigious NFL choose to settle now after letting this drag on for over a year? If the plan was to settle, why not do so earlier and not let a year of awful publicity linger? How much money was actually paid in the settlement? Sports commentator Darren Ravel said on Twitter, the money Kaepernick got was more than he would have ever made in his career if the collusion had never happened. That could mean in the neighborhood of 80 to 100 million dollars. That's quite a neighborhood. It's also worth noting that it is incredibly difficult to prove collusion. According to the collective bargaining agreement, there must be some form of tangible proof that two or more owners or an owner and the commissioner discussed barring a player from getting signed. It seems likely, I mean, one can assume from this, that there was some sort of smoking gun, written correspondence, or perhaps a whistleblower that proved there was a coordinated plan to keep Kaepernick and Reed as well out of the league. Given everything we know about the pressure put on NFL owners, from the White House to sponsors like Papa John's Pizza, to keep Kaepernick off the field because he dared to kneel, the existence of some form of smoking gun hardly beggars belief. Or maybe it's just because NFL owners were so embarrassed about what could be disclosed that they just wanted to shut this up and turn it away as soon as possible. Now because of the confidentiality agreement, we may never get the answer to these questions. It must be noted that I'm already seeing people all over social media who are disappointed that Kaepernick and Reed chose to settle. They wanted them to get all of this in open court so the NFL's racism could be laid out for the world to see. But honestly, in a league that has colluded against Kaepernick for over a year, in a league that has a team named after a racial slur, a league whose owners gave $8 million to Donald Trump's inauguration committee, if you need open court to show that this is a league rife with a racism problem, then you're just not paying attention. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. 
People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. This week, the Just Stand Up Award goes to eight University of Mississippi men's basketball players who knelt in protest during the national anthem before last Saturday's game as Confederate and Nazi groups marched through their school's campus. Six of those players, and let's name them, K.J. Buffin, D.C. Davis, Brian Hallams, Luis Rodriguez, Devante Schuler, and Bruce Stevens knelt as the team lined up shoulder-to-shoulder along the free-throw line as the anthem played. As the song neared its end, Brian Tyree and Franco Miller Jr. also knelt. Tyree said, We're just tired of these hate groups coming to our school and portraying our campus. Like our actual university has these hate groups in our school. The majority of it was, we saw one of our teammates doing it and we just didn't want him to be alone. Props also to their coach, Kermit Davis, who stood up for his players for taking a knee and he said, This was all about the hate groups that came to our community and tried to spread racism and bigotry. It's created a lot of tension for our campus. Our players made an emotional decision to show these people that they're not welcome. We respect our players' freedom and ability to do that. End quote. This is in the heart of Mississippi. So big props to these eight players and big props to their coach for all standing up and doing the right thing. As for the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, Sit Your Ass Down! This one goes out to everyone covering the Robert Kraft prostitution sting case. For those who have not heard, in case you've been living inside a bunker, the New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft, a 77-year-old multi-billionaire, was caught in a sting operation at a massage parlor in Juniper, Florida. The police say that this was part of a human sex trafficking ring. Now, this has been repeated and repeated uncritically. But I just want to point out that police have a long record of using phrases like human trafficking as a way to harass sex workers, particularly around the time of the Super Bowl. My point is that we shouldn't jump the gun until we know whether or not this is a case of actual human trafficking or a case of sex workers being harassed by police. Just something to keep in mind as the details of this case move forward. It would not surprise me at all if it's the latter. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much to Aaron Dolan and Sean Doolittle. Thank you so much for everybody patiently waiting for the new episode. Thank you for our sponsors at The Nation Magazine. If you like the show, please go to iTunes. Please go to your podcast app of choice. Please write a comment. Please give it a rating. Please do all the things that make this show available for free on a week-in, week-out basis. For everybody out there listening, we are out of here. Stay frosty. Peace.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.